listen for a word from three chapters in Scripture. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When your people Israel confess your name, pray and plead with you in this house, then here in heaven forgive the sin of your people Israel. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The word of God. Please be seated. Thank you, dear Walt. What a wonderful privilege to be here. It's exciting when you have a Sabbath morning and you have a baby dedication, people admitted to the uh, fellowship of the community by profession of faith and by baptism. Wow, that's, that's a, a thrill to be here today. <laughs> Just to make one personal connection, uh, Rotna landed up on our campus the very first semester and landed up in one of my classes, one of my graduate classes. It was on, um, it was an elective on uh, issues in Seventh-day Adventist theology. And so without knowing that she was gonna be in the class, we thought we'd discuss the Sabbath. So poor Ratna arrived on campus from another denomination in another part of the world and landed up in a class in which we intensively explored um, the understanding of the Sabbath from Scripture. We've had a wonderful and powerful month. We've had preachers share from their experience and from the interpretation of the word, sometimes difficult passages. And I'm sure that this morning, some of you sitting here may actually have experienced in your own life moments of discrimination, the sting of prejudice, and the uh, affront of racism, and other forms of discrimination. But others of us sitting here today may ask ourselves, well, we haven't been directly involved in these kinds of affronts, uh, what now? How can we together hear and move forward? And so what I'd like to do with you today is to um, briefly look at three basic moves. What now? Looking back to something that happened in South Africa with regard to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is at the heart of the chapter I wrote for the book. And then I'd like to look forward as to how we can build together in the future. I'd like to suggest that the response, particularly for those of us who feel that we are complicit with the problems we've been discussing this month, even if not directly responsible for overt acts, how do we as Christians respond. And I'd like to suggest that the first move has already been happening since you're members of this congregation over the last three weeks. That our first task is to hear 
And hearing is a combination of listening and understanding. Uh, how many of you have had a spouse, sometimes my wife tells me this, you've heard what I said, but you didn't hear what I was trying to say. Have you ever heard that experience? Um, there's a difference between just uh, one level of hearing or listening and what happens when one really stops, opens one's heart, and tries to understand, tries to reach out and put yourself in the place of other people and their experiences. Second, I think we need to, to engage in the difficult process of owning, of perhaps taking responsibility even when we perhaps have thought that we're not complicit, that we're not involved. And this is because the issues that we're talking about, particularly racism, gender discrimination, and other forms of oppression and silencing of minorities, sexism, these things are not just overt acts by free agents. They become structural parts of systems that are much bigger than us. And even without our intentional cooperation, they do what they do and they're very, very hard to change. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to respond at a conference, uh, Society of Adventist Philosophers, uh, at the professional meetings to an address by Professor Sally Hasslinger. And uh, she, she, this is her slide, and I found it, uh, the whole presentation was helpful, but I just want to capture these words from Dr. Martin Luther King. At the occasion of uh, the memorial service for three of these girls who were killed in 1963 at the 16th Street Baptist Church, Addie, Cynthia, Denise, and Carol. And this is what Dr. King said at the time. They are the martyred heroines of a holy crusade for freedom and human dignity. And so this afternoon, in a real sense, they have something to say to each of us in their death. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. And those words keep ringing in my mind. We need to listen. We need to take ownership even when we don't feel as if we have been that involved in overt acts of discrimination. Because we're all part of systems which have been um, articulated even in scriptural times from one of our previous uh, preachers and operate certainly massively in our society. So we, we're complicit whether we like it or not. We're part of the thing. So what are we gonna do? The bulk of my um, uh, conversation with you um, today is going to be to attempt to articulate a little bit more clearly what this third step would be, confessing. And if you listen carefully to the scripture reading, you noted that uh, confessing, we confess our faith, all right? Uh, but we also need to confess our faults and that these two forms of confession relate to each other and connected. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And then we'll talk a little bit about asking. Asking for what? Asking for forgiveness when that's appropriate and being willing to forgive if that's appropriate. And finally, 
I suggest that of these uh, five steps, then comes the opportunity to build, to build a new future, to uh, engage in constructive conciliation, building bridges, reconciliation. So let's uh, turn first to, or secondly now, to looking back. Uh, the book, House on Fire, um, was well in production when a conversation happened between Dr. Maury Jackson and myself. In fact, it was right in this church in the corridor down below. I think it was the commencement or it was something when we were dressed up in regalia. We were downstairs and we were talking about the book and I happened to mention the experience of what happened in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, he talked with the other editor of the book, Nathan Brown from Australia, and they both decided that even though it was late in the day, that they would like to have an afterword, a, um, a, a, uh, and a way, way to draw some of the various strands from other Adventist scholars in the book together, and then a chance to look back at a rare opportunity when the Adventist church uh, actually made a public confession of um, failure in the light of uh, the racism of apartheid South Africa. So that's how it happened. And uh, if you look and remember back to the um, scripture reading, did you notice the three uh, passages all use the word confess? But if you look at that carefully, you'll see that these two meanings of confession, the, the Romans passion, confess our faith. If you confess um, faith in Jesus, you'll be saved, right? That's professional faith. But then the James passage said, confess your sins to each other. Same word, confess, confess your sins to each other. And then the King's passage brought them together. If Israel, uh, you know, this is the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And he said, if, if, if when Israel is in trouble and they come to this place and they call on your name and confess your name, then forgive them for their sins. And so I would suggest to you that um, the thesis behind what we're going to share with you today is that confession of truth, that's the profession side, prof confession of truth is the route to reconciliation. We can't get to reconciliation, the mission of the church, for God, we have been reconciled with God in Christ and now we've been given, we call to be ambassadors of reconciliation, call to engage in reconciliation in our communities on the horizontal level. We can't get there unless we confess the truth and remember Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But very often the root, R-U-T-E, the root to reconciliation is through confessing our faults, confessing our sins. I had the pleasure of meeting up with an old schoolmate from South Africa. Just moved to this conference, and he graciously agreed to come here and engage in a podcast. And I just want to tell you, there's a 30-minute conversation that he and I have up on the church website. You're welcome to look at that for further background. But I thought that maybe a brief video clip from that conversation would share with you in personal terms, not the big horrors of apartheid, but the small affronts, not so small, but the, 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 the affronts to one's dignity and to one's person that happened every day, the everyday um, assaults of racism. Uh, listen to a brief clip. 
Ron, thank you very much for um, doing this conversation. You know, painful experiences um, of um, what it was like mm -hmm. to live on the wrong side of the tracks in South Africa and growing up. You know, probably it's even more hurtful when things happen that are not ideal even in the church context. Mm -hmm. Share us a little bit of your own experience uh, of how you ended up at Hildeberg and uh, what happened then. Well, 1974 was the first year that people of color or non-whites were accepted officially, formally, into Hildeberg College mm. 50 years ago this year. Right. And so I was one of three students who were allowed to join, but they didn't give us all the information. They just said, you're coming in fully, officially as a student. And oh, that was exciting. Right. Of course, little did we know some of the challenges we would right. face. Right. What were some of them? Such as we couldn't live in the dormitory, which means we you had to could, you, you were a student, but you couldn't live in the No, dormitory. absolutely not. <laughs> we had to travel in every day by train, a long journey for us. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the issues. Secondly, we couldn't eat in the cafeteria. Wow. You know, even though we were supposedly, officially, fully uh, accepted as students. Yeah. Thankfully, some male students, theology majors, welcomed us to rest, relax in their dorm rooms during classes, and that was but helpful. But you had to come onto campus and leave. Correct. And that was not just a, a five-minute commute, that was a, a Quite, long way. Correct, yeah. correct. And then I believe in your graduation year, you know, you had to pay this senior student fee. Tell us what happened there. Yes, yeah, all students had to pay that for the senior class activities, and we were glad to do that. We were fully students. Yeah. But then one of the activities that they'd planned was an outing. I think it was on a Sunday, and it was at the beach. And of course, I love swimming. Right. <laughs> and when we looked at it, it was the, to the whites-only beach. Naturally, we as people of color, as we were called, coloreds, couldn't go. It was illegal. Yeah. And of course, we felt unfairly treated, and so we wanted to follow proper protocols, and so we made an appointment to see the president. Back then, I, called, I think called the principal, Dr. Mm -hmm. Arthur Kutsia. Mm. And he welcomed us in his office, and he began to share with us and talk to us, which I was grateful for. He said, Ron and uh, Dan and Kelvin, let me make a suggestion to you, gentlemen. We're glad you're here, but I want to urge you to not see yourselves as guinea pigs. Mm. I think that's the way we were feeling at that mm. time. He probably mm. sensed that mm. as we talked with him. He said, see yourselves as pioneers. Mm. And the reality of pioneers is the road is not always easy. There are going to be challenges. There will be suffering. But see that the fact that you are forging a path towards the future. Hmm. Well, powerful, insightful. Um, if you want to see more of that, you're very welcome to um, check the full podcast on the church website. In the 1990s, after finishing graduate school, I went back to teach at Hildeberg College. This was just the time of the change to the new South Africa, the first fully one-person, one-vote free election in 1994. And connected with that was the appointment by Parliament of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to attempt to deal with the problems of the legacies of apartheid. What do you do with the gross violations of human rights, with the daily trampling on human dignity, with the situation in which much of the truth was not even out? The options were Nuremberg-style, get every criminal and try them, general amnesty, just forget everything and start over, and South Africa chose a third way of trying to work together to build a new nation uh, through the process of truth and reconciliation. Toward the end of the process in 1997, 
the um, Commission on Faith Communities invited churches to make a response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. How had they been involved or how had they opposed apartheid and what was their vision for the future? Interestingly, Adventists were left out of the picture until very late at the end and then uh, somebody noticed that uh, nobody had approached us and the story is in the article, so I won't go over it now. The long story short, it landed up at Hildeberg College. I was the chair at the, at the time. Nobody wanted to touch it, but we said, we are gonna make uh, a draft that can go to the union conference for them to submit to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, that, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that's the actual, on the, your left is the opening session in East London, in the Eastern Cape, and there's, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu talking to Nelson Mandela. It was Mandela's wish to focus on nation building. And there's a better picture of, um, uh, let's go to it, uh, of Desmond Tutu, who died just a year or two ago. Um, and we had the pleasure from La Sierra University of taking a group of students with Charles Teal to actually meet with him in Cape Town. So finally, the op uh, opportunity was for the church, what are we gonna do in terms of uh, our responsibility and our involvement in the whole issue of apartheid in South Africa? Um, this is the actual document. It's in the book, House on Fire, at the very end, and you can read the eight pages that were formulated. What I'd like to do is to try to take the point that we made in, in the sermon today, and that is that there's a connection between confessing your faith and confessing your faults, your failures, and show how we tried at that time, now almost 25 years ago, how we tried to bring those two things together into uh, something that could actually uh, be helpful in the church uh, context. Uh, just to say that uh, I essentially wrote this document, but with help from the students who at that time in my class were from all demographic groups in South Africa, but we also had the opportunity to listen from uh, to other Adventists, particularly this little booklet by Tulin Macheti and uh, Tulin Corsi, Pulin Macheti and Tulin Corsi, uh, God or Apartheid, a challenge for South African Adventism. Hard to find that little document now, it's only a pamphlet of 36 pages, but really insightful, published back in 1991. So we, we uh, appreciated that. So I'd like to share with you the opening words of this statement. Let me tell you, eventually, it was the official South African Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists submission, a statement of confession to the Public Truth and Reconciliation Commission, chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and presented to the Parliament of South Africa. And uh, we, we were just one of the submissions, obviously, from faith communities. Um, so here's what we said. As Seventh-day Adventists, we didn't want the statement to be bland um, human rights. We wanted to speak in our own voice, okay? You can remember this profession of our faith, so listen here. As Seventh-day Adventists, we confess our faith, there you go, we confess our faith in the coming God, and now quoting Revelation, the one who was and is and is to come, who as such calls for, and you should recognize this verse, right? Revelation 14, 12, uh, the patience of the saints or the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Now there is confession of the one kind. And then the next one, in the face of the heresy of apartheid, I could tell you how much of a battle it was over that word heresy. Many didn't want us to use the word heresy, that only applies in the spiritual realm, but we persisted. In the face of the heresy of apartheid, we confess that we have failed by our sins of omission and commission to properly evidence the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, 
or hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, thereby misrepresenting the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in deep repentance, we seek for forgiveness from God and our fellow um, citizens and commit ourselves to reformation, justice, and reconciliation. So that's what we're trying to say. Then we wanted to get concrete. So uh, we just pointed out that these two things belong together. And uh, let me just go to this one. So we took that passage from Revelation, this sort of identity marker that Adventists love to use to describe themselves. And we went through each of its three parts and tried to show how this would apply in the situation of apartheid and what we failed to do. So Revelation 14, 12a talks about the patience of the saints or the endurance of the saints. And this is what we said. The text calls for the patient endurance of suffering for the cause of Christ. We confess that we were more or altogether caught up with maintaining our traditional apolitical stance with regard to the separation of church and state to effectively combat the viciousness of apartheid. As a church, we failed to truly be the church, the called out ones, by both our tendency to avoid the suffering that accompanied true discipleship and the silence in the face of the suffering of others. We confess that despite our zeal for the commandments of God, we have failed to adequately contextualize just what the righteousness of God meant in practice in South Africa. Can we honestly say that we obeyed the injunction to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and your neighbor as yourself? And then we went to the commandments, <laughs> all 10 of them. And so this will go very quickly. Uh, here's the question, commandment number one. You know what the commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Did we not often put the God of expediency before the Lord God, the righteous judge? Number two, can we be sure that we did not make an idol for ourselves of expediency and our doctrinal tenant, uh, this or that, or our own self-interests, rather than understand the poor, the, express, uh, the oppressed, and the needy of the land who needed our attention? Do we not prescribe against making wrongful use? Sorry, did, did we understand the prescription against lying, against taking the Lord's name in vain, and, not, and that it did not compel us to resist those who would attempt to misuse the holy name for evil purposes? And then paradigmatically, the Sabbath, you can imagine, but most paradigmatically of all, we have to ask how we could claim to properly keep the Sabbath holy without being the explicit, without its heeding its explicit demand for practical justice, co-humanity, deliverance and healing. For truly Sabbath keeping, true Sabbath keeping and keeping silent in the face of oppression are mutually exclusive. Then we went through the second title, but we won't have time for that, so I'll just skip over these. Um, I'll just end with uh, number 10. Do we not have to admit that we coveted security, peace, and quiet for ourselves with public respect and acceptance rather than risk raising the wrath of the state, running amok with the exploitation of the poor and the enrichment and corruption of the strong? So we try to take the commandments and apply it in a concrete context in South Africa. 
And then the last part of Revelation 12, uh, 14, 12 is uh, the faith of Jesus, or we call it the testimony of Jesus, and somehow we get around to the spirit of prophecy. So this is what we said, the key point. For the church that has made so much of the spirit of prophecy as an important spiritual gift for the body of Christ, we have to confess that we've been singularly at fault in failing to address the tragic distortion of human rights and the systemic misrepresentation of Christianity in our country prophetically. And the final paragraph of the, uh, the, the document goes on to answer specific questions from the TRC and actually visioning for where the church should go. But I'll end with this. We commit ourselves, therefore, to the proclamation of the eternal gospel. You can hear the three angels' message here if you listen carefully. Of the universality of God's love, the denouncement of the Babylonian captivity of the church in which it sells its soul to the state, and the articulation of a more effective and clear warning against the worship of the beast, that civil religious concoction of blasphemy, coercion, and human arrogance and, the in, and injustice that seems to find its root all too easily in our midst. Whew, that's what we said back then, and uh, that's what I think it means to confess your faith and to confess your faults at the same time. And I think that that's uh, important for us to do. Finally, I'd like us to just look forward briefly. And I'd like to just update you with a story, a story of one person involved and meeting another person, and I think epitomizing the Adventist resources in combating racism. The story is about the lady to your left, Jennifer Reed. I was at Hildeberg College in 1993, at the very end of the year, December 30, 31, when I suddenly received a phone call to come urgently to the house of our head elder of the Hildeberg College Church, Jennifer E. They had just learned that their daughter, 23 years old, had been massacred in the Heidelberg restaurant down on, uh, just down below Rosebank and, and Mowbray in Cape Town. They'd been to the morgue that identified her body. Three operatives from the Pan-Africanist Congress who had, not, who had been resisting, because this is 1993, resisting the move towards a uh, resolution of apartheid, felt that more suffering, more, more um, uh, equality needed to be um, formed and forged at the point of a gun. And so these operatives had stormed into this restaurant with AK-47s blazing and took the lives of several people, including Jinfari's daughter, Lindy. This was a crushing experience. Can you imagine? We rushed to her house, we saw um, Jin and her family, and what it's like when this happens in your life. I was particularly moved when I was invited to be part of a prayer at the funeral. The prayer was moving because she'd asked me to, to say my little part, but then allow her to read a poem that she'd written. And if we'd had time, I would have read to you a couple of verses from that poem. Powerful statement of forgiveness for what had happened. Not because she felt it, but because her commander in chief, Jesus, required it. The story went on and at, they were, they were captured 
shortly thereafter, about three weeks, and at the trial, a normal civil trial for murder, um, she attended the whole uh, trial at the Supreme Court in Cape Town and slipped a note via the interpreter to them and said, if you feel guilty, if you are guilty, I want you to know I forgive you for what happened. Later on, when these three applied for amnesty from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, she supported their amnesty and again made contact with them. Initially, they were resistant, but eventually they sent word to her that they appreciated what she did. Nine years later, she was listening to the radio and heard an interview with Letlapa Mafalele. He's the gentleman on your right. He was the APLA commander who gave the orders for those three operatives to engage in the Heidelberg massacre. She decided to go and speak to him, initially thinking she would confront him uh, because she was angry and confused and still had questions, even though she had forgiven them and she was willing to forgive him. And so she stood up at the, uh, during his book signing, A Child of the Soil was the book that he was promoting. Uh, he had just come back to South Africa as an exile, just returned. And so she stood up and said to him, uh, why are you snubbing the TRC process by being unwilling to be in, uh, involved in it? And he stopped immediately what he was doing and he looked at her and spoke to her. And then he came down off the podium and went and engaged with her. And he said to her, I want you to come to my homecoming, which will happen in a couple of weeks up in the northern Transvaal, in a little village where I'm from. I'd like you to come with me. And initially, all her friends said, don't ever do that. This is terribly dangerous, this is difficult. Uh, he's not admitted what he did, uh, be careful. She went, she spoke, and you'll hear the words of Litlapa responding to what actually happened. Can I just read to you his words that he spoke? I'm an atheist, but I believe absolutely in reconciliation, meeting soul to soul, person to person. As human beings, we have to face each other and mend relationships. Getting to know Jin has been a profound and humbling experience for me. From our first meeting in 2002, Jin understood me. While others couldn't understand why these terrorists were still unapologetic, Jin said she detected remorse in me. By this time, all the charges against me had been withdrawn, but I still felt nothing inside. It was only when people extended gifts of forgiveness that the roots of my heart were shaken and something was restored inside me. Since meeting Jin, I've had to face the fact that people were killed because of my orders. I've also had to acknowledge that the people we fought and harmed and caused to grieve were never our direct enemies. I believe the terror had to be answered with terror. I authorized high-profile massacres on white citizens in the same way that our oppressors had done to us. At the time, it seemed the only valid response. But where would it have ended? If my enemies had been cannibals, would I have eaten white flesh? If my enemies had raped black women, would I have raped white women? I have changed since that time, and I no longer believe that you should meet violence with violence. I now think that you can deal with oppression in a more creative way. I believe what Jin says, that even if violence comes your way, you should absorb it. And that is not a coward's way. 
it's extremely difficult to do. Lidlapa continues, my mission now is to reach out to those who've survived because by meeting together, we're able to restore each other's humanity. When Jin attended my homecoming, she delivered the most moving speech of the day. She stood up and asked for forgiveness on behalf of her ancestors. And she also got the loudest applause, louder than I got nearly two decades, after two decades in exile. Some people have decided not to forgive me for what I've done, and I understand this. It is not easy to forgive. But to those who have forgiven, I believe that this is how we start to rebuild our communities. This is an intense human mission. Since that statement, Jin, on your left, and Lapa on your right, have teamed together to create the Lindy Faree Foundation. And by the way, you can find that. Hopefully, we can circulate uh, that uh, oh, um, link if you'd like to read more. And they have been building together uh, ways of healing both victims and perpetrators in the New South Africa. Together, they were featured in the documentary Beyond Forgiving. Church family, here is just the story of one woman and one man. An Adventist woman and an atheist man. Linked together through the most horrific act imaginable, mass murder. But through the power of hearing, owning, confessing, forgiving, and now building towards reconciliation, one can see, I believe, the work of the Spirit. So at the end of our series of Black History Month, I will close with the words of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Church, let's learn to love well. God bless you.